last week you're here, Jeremy preached an introduction to Leviticus. Uh, this week we're going to do an introduction to the book of James. Uh, maybe 2023 is just going to be one book introduction after another all year long. We're going to do, what was it, 52 weeks of this? Just kidding, we won't do that. Um, but make your way over to the book of James. And if you're not familiar with that, the easiest way to do that, start at the back of your Bible, go to the book of Revelation, not Revelations, Revelation. Uh, and go backwards past Jude and past all three Johns. There's always so many Johns. Uh, and then past uh, two different Peters, and you're going to find yourself in James. And if you hit Hebrews, you went, you went too far. Just start over or go back. Um, if you're using an app, just press the word James, and you're there. You're welcome. Uh, all right, so most of us know what it's like to go check the mail. That's still a common phenomenon, not as a phenomenon, event that we do in our life, right? You open the box and you begin to say, oh, there's a stack of mail, and you look, and you're like, oh, there's Capital One cards and bills that I need to pay, and, and maybe there's a stack of coupons for, you know, Arby's Beef and Cheddar, um, you know, something like that, that once a year, there's or every other year, there's what, political ads that you just throw away, whatever. Um, mostly a bunch of worthless stuff you, you, comes out of our mailboxes nowadays. But every, every once in a while, you actually receive a personal letter or a note from someone, uh, and you're actually excited to open those to see, what, what are they writing me for? What are they wanting to say to me in, in this moment? Um, well, I, I mean, I tell you that because I want you to understand that what, what we call the book of James, what, it, what is in the canon of Scripture, right, and we call the book of, of James, is it, really what, what you might hear called at times an epistle. Uh, and an epistle is just a, an old Greek word that means letter, right? It's a letter uh, that has been written from one person to a group of other people. Uh, and I want you to understand that think about that. This is a letter that we are opening up to hear from a brother in Christ who is, you know, was carried along by the Holy Spirit, writing the Word of God for the people of God. And, and you and me then are, are coming to this to be, to be changed, to be challenged, to be encouraged by, by God's Word. But, but this is also a letter, right? And it's a letter about the transforming power of the gospel. It is a letter about, about exercising real faith in real life where we actually go about living out our faith, right? It's also one of the earliest letters ever written in the, in the, in the New Testament. Uh, somewhere between 40 and 50 AD is, is, is where it's at. Um, and this week, I want you to go home and I want you to read at least chapter 1 of James. You, you, we can all do that. No matter how old you are, if you have one good eye, whatever, you can read a chapter of James, no problem. Uh, and I want you to do that, but today we're going to read just one single verse at the beginning, and we're going to unpack it um, as we get to it. And that's going to be the first verse. That shouldn't surprise you too much. Uh, so James 1, I want you to follow along as we, as we read that. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Abba, Father, we, I mean, here we are at the beginning of a new year and at the start of a new book, a, a new segment of your holy word. Prepare our hearts to come to James and in search of wholeness, and in search of our life lining up with, with the faith we, we profess, with the faith we have, in, in search of knowing you better and glorifying you and, and loving you with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. The Holy Spirit, lead us on to maturity, to the joy of the Christian life, 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if you haven't figured it out yet, the author of this book is James. And the fact that he just puts James there with no other aspect of uh, further identification tells us that the people who receive this, they, they know who James is. They, they know his credentials. He doesn't have to try to explain. Listen, I'm your insurance agent. None of that kind of thing, uh, introductory stuff is there. Um, it's, it's, they know who he is, right? It's not like that weird Christmas card. You're like, honey, who is this uh, kind of situation? They, they know James. But the question here is, do, do you know who James is? Right? Uh, James was a lot like the name John is amongst us today and back then, actually. Very common. There are at least five different Jameses mentioned in the New Testament. And even more in the Old Testament, as you, as you begin to realize that, that the Hebrew name Jacob, every time you read Jacob, when it gets uh, translated into Greek and then over into English, what you end up with is, is James. And so James and, and Jacob are actually the, the same name. It's kind of like the name uh, Jose, right? Jose in Spanish is actually just the name Joseph. Spanish drops the PH for some reason. Uh, and, and so the question, right, is, is this James, the son of Alphaeus, uh, who was one of the lesser known of the 12 apostles. It's not. Uh, is this James, the son of Zebedee? You probably know a little more about him, right? Also an apostle, along with his brother John, got that incredible, you know, pro wrestling-like name, uh, the Sons of Thunder, like they have the best nickname in all of scripture, I think. Uh, it's, it's, not that, it's not that James. Uh, that James died before this letter was actually ever written. Uh, and so I'll tell you who James is, but I want to do this in a little way. Uh, in Matthew 13, 55, we learn that Jesus has four brothers uh, and multiple sisters. We don't know how many, but multiple. Uh, technically, these are all half-siblings of, of Jesus, uh, right? I hope it's not surprising to you, but they were not divinely conceived themselves. They are uh, children of Joseph and Mary. And the names of the four brothers are given in Mark 6, 3. Here they are. James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. I don't know why Simon got a nest name and everyone else got J's, but that's what happened. Um, that's the James that we are talking about here, right? Uh, the half-brother uh, of Jesus, or the brother of Jesus, as he would put it other places. Now, can you imagine growing up in the same household of Jesus? We all think, well, that'd be great, you know, if you had the perfect brother, right? But you're going to be so frustrated at him at times, right? And, and you're growing up, and, you know, you get mad at him. You're like, what, you think you're God's gift to humanity? It would be a long time before you realize, yeah, yeah, actually, that's exactly who Jesus is. Now, it's, it's surprising to us, but, but Jesus' family at first did not believe in him. You know that. They didn't even respect him when his public ministry began. John 7, 5 says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Uh, Mark 3, 20 and 21 records the time, right, Jesus goes back to his hometown and you think, oh, all these people know him. They'll be rooting for him. It'll be like, uh, you know, Mahomes going back to Tyler, Texas or something. Uh, and so he's going back to, to Nazareth. But listen to this. When, when Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat, and, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. And they were saying, he is out of his mind. That's what his family had to say. I, I love just the raw honesty of the scriptures here, right? No one makes this stuff up. This is not the response you expect, right? His family, Jesus' family is calling him crazy. Maybe they, they thought Jesus was getting too into this religious thing. You ever have a, a friend or a family member think you were getting too into Jesus? Right? You want to go on a mission trip? 
You give money to that, right? Whatever it might be. Can't you just be casually Christian, you know? Can't you be more nominal, less devoted, less fanatical, not so weird? You can understand that. One, one reality um, that Jesus' family teaches us here is, is this. It's that proximity to Jesus is, is not the same thing as faith in Jesus. And you know this already, right? But it's a good reminder to see this even, even in this situation. You can go to church every single week. You can be in the presence of God's people and worship you, and, and not have faith in Jesus yourself. Just as it's James, right? He's raised in the same household of, of Jesus, and yet he didn't have faith in Jesus. Right? And that whole idea, that's why we talk about having ownership of your faith. Right? For it to be your faith, and, and not just your family's faith, or your friend's faith. But your faith. And, and that's, that's often a process the Lord brings us through. Now, now James didn't believe his brother was the Messiah. And yet, here he is writing a book of Scripture. So you know something happened, right? A conversion happened at some point. What happened? Where, where's the transition? Now, unlike Paul, who, what, tells his conversion story like 400 times in the Scriptures, right? We, we never hear how James actually uh, went about thinking, you know, going from, you know, my brother is absolutely crazy to I have absolute complete faith in this man who I grew up with. The best guess we have is from 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is telling people all about how Jesus, are telling about how all the people that Jesus visited, right, after his death, after his resurrection, and he appears to all these people, and he's going through his list and listing off people, and in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Paul says, and then Jesus appeared to James. Now, we don't know what all went down in that, it's not recorded, but if your dead brother shows up alive, and he can walk through doors, and all these other kind of things, you, you probably no longer think he's crazy. At this point, you probably think, you know what, I'm probably crazy for what, what I'm seeing here. Uh, oh, and if that's not the case, it's because God has given him faith. That might be it. But I don't know. We don't know. Uh, you know, maybe God granted James faith somewhere before seeing, before Jesus was ever nailed to the cross. I, I don't know. You can, you can add that, right, to the ongoing list of questions you want to ask people in eternity, whether you're God or or other saints and, you know, other Christians. Uh, so James later becomes a pastor in the early church. <clears throat> and the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.9 refers to James as a pillar, right? What's a pillar, right? It's a strong leader in the early church. That's what he means, an important, strong leader. We, we see that in, in Acts 15. They're, they're trying to figure out, uh, right, these, these Gentile Christians, these non-Jewish uh, people are coming to faith in Christ and, and they have this question, you know, what, what do we do for them? Do we expect them to follow the, the ceremonial laws and the food laws and all that kind of thing? Do, do these guys need to get circumcised? Are they allowed to eat bacon and shrimp? Right? The, these are kind of the questions that are arising. How, how much of the Old Testament ceremonial law do they have to follow? And th this event is called the Council of Jerusalem and, and the guy who leads that meeting, it's not Paul like we probably would expect. It's not Peter, right? It's not not John, it's, it's James. James, the brother of Jesus. Our James that wrote this letter that we're going to be looking at. Uh, the conclusion of that council, by the way, in case you don't know, was that Gentiles, uh, just like the Jews, received salvation by, by grace through faith alone, not by works of the law, not by adhering to food or circumcision kind of things, right? And In other words, that's, that's why you and I can go and enjoy bacon, right? You don't have to keep living by the, the ceremonial laws. Now, 
Uh, there's an ancient historian named Eusebius. Eusebius. Eusebius, I, you know. Um, it's a great name. I know some of you are with child. If you need a good name, this is a great one, Eusebius. Uh, it means to worship well. Uh, Ryan's here, wherever you are. I know you've got a blank check for your middle name, at least. Is that right? That's the way I understand it. So I, I'd like to see Eusebius here, or Eusebius, you know, Brashears, or whatever. Uh, anyway, uh, Eusebius is this, this historian, and he recorded these three nicknames, right? Which just tell us what's, what's the reputation of James, is what we learn from these. And, and, and the main one, right, is that some just called him James the Just. Pretty good name. They call him that because of his enthusiasm to, to promote righteousness and, and justice in, in others. Uh, we're definitely going to see that as we exposit uh, the book of James, the letter of James, that he has great affection for God's law. In uh, ch chapter 1, verse 25, he calls it the perfect law. And yet at no point does he demand uh, that anyone keep the ceremonial laws regarding food or circumstance, and like, like the, the council, right? Uh, as da Dan Doriani says, James had a zeal for legal righteousness, but a greater zeal for the grace of God. James's second nickname was James the Righteous, uh, and this is because of his personal integrity. He actually lived it out well. And the last one, the last one's really a weird nickname. It doesn't include the name James at all. It's, it's Camel Knees, right? That's just his nickname, Camel Knees. Not because his knees went backward or anything like that. Uh, it's because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer to the Lord for his friends, for the church, for, for everything. Uh, and it turns out camels actually spend a lot of time kneeling down. So that, that's his third nickname. That's the one I would have gone with as my main one if I were him. Um, but he doesn't. Anyway, so that, that covers the first word of this letter. James. I promise we'll move through the letter a little quicker than that. Uh, let's move on already, right? And I, I, I got to tell you, I, I love the way that James begins this letter. Especially because knowing what we know about James at this point, right? Uh, he could have begun this letter with James the Just, right? Or given a really long one, right? James the just, the righteous, having been formed in the same womb as our Lord. I am James, the brother of Jesus. He really could have done something flashy like that, but he doesn't flex at all. He keeps it real simple, right? Uh, uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, introducing yourself as a servant of, of God is not a rare thing. Paul does it in both Romans and, and Philippians. Uh, Titus and Jude... Jude, who's a brother of James, by the way, uh, it's Judas. He takes the S off for probably obvious reasons. Um, now, Peter, uh, in his second letter, introduces himself as a servant of God as well. And, and John, in Revelation, identifies himself as, as a servant of the Lord. And so it's not uncommon. Now, in, in the original Greek, the term here, servant, is this word doulos or doulos. Uh, and it carries a little baggage with it. Uh, most likely, your Bible has a, a little one next to the word servant, right? You got it out? Look at that. See if your eyes can see it and young people can see it. Um, and if you go find the footnote for that, it's going to say, uh, you can begin to see what the baggage is, right? It says real tiny, or slave, or it might say, or bond servant, if it's being a little nicer. Uh, now, let's, let's deal with that. If I said to you <laughs> this morning, would you like a biscuit? What would you picture in your head? What would you think I'm offering you? It would be a, a fluffy, flour-made, buttery thing covered in, you know, butter, maybe smothered in gravy, that, that southern thing that we know as Americans. Right? That's, that's what you picture. And I can communicate that to you. But, but if you're from, from Britain, 
right? And we have a British person. Did you picture a fluffy southern biscuit? He thought of a cookie. That's right. Because the same word has these two very different connotations here. He thinks of a sugary cookie. And, and my point is this, that when the first century church read this letter, and they come across this term, right, doulos, right? They come there, this word that means slave, it brought something very different to their minds than, than, than the despicable practice of slavery that comes to your mind because of our nation's history. Right? They didn't think the same thing. And so you've got to read it with that in mind. And, and let me explain this. First of all, Roman slavery at the time had nothing to do with race. Second, in, in, in the most common form of slavery, people actually agreed or sold themselves into it. It was, it was sadly not because they're like, this sounds like a great plan, right? Because of some sort of desperation. It's usually because of, of poverty or, or debt. Uh, they did it in order to get benefits that they were looking for, right? To pay off their debt for one. Uh, also, their master would provide food and shelter. Very often, they were given skills that they were, they were trained in. Usually, there was a point even when, when they had paid off enough that their freedom was given to them, then they could go away with this new skill that provided them a better place in, in the world, right? Not entirely unlike the GI Bill or an internship. Not entirely. Um, sometimes, they, they would be set free even with an amount of money that had steadily just been building up over the years, and so they would, they would go out actually with some money ready to go. Now that's not to say, oh, there's this wonderful, you know, thing called slavery back then. There was all sorts of corruption involved in it. So some masters were unjust and cruel and even oppressive. That, that's why in Colossians 4, right, verse 1, Paul says, Masters, treat your doulos, right, treat your slave, treat your servants, treat them justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Don't do it like those, those other people do it. And, and when James here refers to himself as a doulos, he actually names his, his master suddenly. He says, God the Father and, and Jesus the Son. But both of whom are good and gracious, right? The, the kind of master that we can willingly submit our lives to, knowing we'll be cared for, treated well, better than well. And so at the most basic level, to, to be a slave, as James understands it, as the early church understands it, to, to be a, a, a doulos, right? means that James's life is owned by another. That's probably uncomfortable for us as well. What he's saying is my life is owned by God. I belong to him, right? It's like Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.19, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, and so glorify God in your body. You belong to, to God. My, my life, and, and Christian, your life has been purchased. That the payment for your, your life was the blood of Christ upon the cross. That that reality is why I really love this word, doulos, right? It's this Greek term. And in fact, if I ever get a tattoo, this is what I'm getting tattooed on me, doulos, right? It's, it's going to be, it would be this, this, an indelible reminder that not only am I a child of God, not only am I a dean, but I am a, a servant of God, a doulos of God. My life is in the service of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why I love that word for us. Now understand, it is an honor we see in Scripture to be a servant of God. Way back in Numbers 12, 78, God refers to Moses as his servant, right? With the equivalent word that when it gets translated to the Greek is doulos. Uh, in 2 Samuel 7, 5, David is called a servant of God. You remember in, uh, in 1 Samuel 3, 9, when young Samuel, he's in the dark and he keeps hearing this voice and he's asking, what do I say, what do I say? 
Uh, and, and at night, he, he finally is told to say this. He says, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's how he identifies himself. And as our, our Lord, Jesus himself, right, he is the suffering servant that is spoken of in the book of Isaiah. And, and we see that in, in his manner of life throughout the, the, the Gospels, right? And washing the, the feet of his disciples, doing the will of the Father, feeding strangers, going to the cross <clears throat> for your and I's redemption. And I, I mean, I kind of belabor this phrase for this purpose. Christian, you need to lean into this identity more. You are a servant. You are a doulos of God. And when you know that, really know that, it changes how you live. It, it gives you perspective that's, that's better than just what you want your career to be. It's better than, you know, all the other goals we might be setting for ourselves. It, it helps you stop asking, too, you know, what does this church or this friendship or this organization or this, you know, whatever have to offer me? How does it serve me? And, and it helps you to look for, for how you can be serving the Lord. Whether that's caring for your family or, or vacuuming up crumbs after the worship service or, or just getting out of your comfort zone and, and getting to know people at work or in class or wherever people might be around you. It means being vulnerable and, and helping form our covenant community into a, a welcoming place, a, a place to be lovingly challenged and graciously cared for and so that we can grow in our faith together. I mean, that being said, it is important to, to hold on to all of our God-given identities and not just single one out, right? Don't forget that you are also in 1 John 12 referred to as a child of God. And that's significant when these two come together, right? And in other words, when, when you remember that God is not some distant king demanding your blind obedience, some oppressive, you know, in, in that sense, but, but he is your loving heavenly father who has poured out his love for you. When you remember that, when you really grasp that, uh, that your service to the Lord is, is going to be willing going to be joyous. It becomes a delight for us to submit our, our lives to the Lord. Now I won't spend too much time here because it's real clear once you see it, but the fact that James declares himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're like, yeah, that makes sense. Right? The Father, the Son. Uh, it's theologically quite significant though in, in the history of the church. By, by putting these together, he's declaring that Jesus, he's not merely just the child of our mother, as James would see it, right? Their mother Mary, but but mind-blowingly, he's understanding that Jesus, his brother, is, is also the Son of God. That he is, he is divine, right? That, that, that he is deity in flesh. He's acknowledging such a glorious truth there. Uh, the next thing we see in our single verse today is, is who this letter is written to, the twelve tribes and the dispersion. Uh, you can find that in verse 1 if you're looking. Uh, which at first sounds like he means the twelve tribes of of Israel, right? Um, the, if he had meant that, it would include the phrase of Israel at the end, like, like almost every other instance in the New Testament when they are referring to the nation of Israel. Also, in, in, within the New Testament, right, Paul and, and Peter make incredibly clear that the church is the true heir to the promises of, of God to Israel. Uh, put simply, James, here what he means is this. He means Christians from both Jewish and Gentile backgrounds Christians who are, are scattered in the, in the local regions, right, uh, because of persecutions. Uh, it's like we learn about in Acts 8.1, right? Uh, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's who he's writing to. You have all these Christians, a mixture of Jews and, and Gentiles at this point. 
and, and this persecution. So they've scattered out, and this letter, right, is, is going out to all of them, meaning the intention of this letter is not just to show up in one person's mailbox, but it was probably copied multiple times and sent out to many churches, or sent to a church, or sent to the next church, or the next church, or the next church. Uh, it was to be widely distributed. He, he is writing to Christians then who understand the difficulty of being a disciple of Jesus in a culture that makes godliness and commitment to the Lord very difficult. To, to Christians who also, right, uh, still understand that they, they, they have hearts that are still stubbornly selfish. He's writing to Christians, some of which we'll see later are wealthy, some of them are poor. They come from all sorts of different backgrounds. It's not like they're just some affinity group. Um, they're a lot like when you look around the church, just about any church, right? They're a lot like when you look around this room, people from all sorts of different backgrounds. And finally, this section ends with the simplest of greetings, literally uh, the word greetings. You ever welcome anyone that way? Greetings. It's a, it's a complete sentence all by itself, if you want it to be. Uh, as an aside, the, the Greek dictionary for translation suggests that, that you translate this hail. Uh, maybe it was written before the whole German Nazi thing, uh, but that's what hail means. Uh, regardless, the, the word literally means to rejoice, to be glad. So it says greeting, right? I'm, I'm glad you're here. I'm rejoicing to write to you is what he's getting at. Now, I, I hope you're excited to get into James. In one sense, um, just like the book of, of Job and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs, uh, James is what is called wisdom literature. Uh, that is, these are books that are about being skilled in, in the art of, of living godly, living wisely. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga, interesting, defines wisdom as this. The knowledge of God's world and a knack for fitting oneself into it. In another sense, James speaks like an old school prophet. It might terrify you at moments if you really get into it, right? The blunt words, like in James 5.1, when he says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Right? He's writing to friends here. Uh, James is like that friend who just says it like it is. You all know those people. You have those friends. They have nothing sugar-coated. It just comes, you know, serious blow of words. It's like a slap across the face. And, and yet you love them because you know they speak the truth to you. Uh, and it's a particularly difficult book for us as, as modern Americans because <clears throat> he's writing to Christians who, I mean, understand this. He's writing to those who have faith in Christ. He's writing to those who love Jesus, who love the gospel, right? That's true of them. They're, they're people that are theologically solid to, to Christians that honestly are a lot like us, to, who love the scriptures and love theology and learning and sometimes, if they're honest, right, don't love doing the things they learn. Yeah, I mean, can't we just go deeper into some high-level theology instead of applying that? It, you know, the, you'll, you'll find James, it's, it's like that difficult workout where after you're like, my whole body hurts, I may never move again, and yet you know as miserable and hard and difficult as it is, you know it's for your good, you know it's making you stronger. And while James doesn't explicitly explain justification by, by faith, uh, the gospel is here. For starters, it comes in the context of the author who, right, long ago at the Council of Jerusalem understood that we all receive the gospel not by works, but by, by grace alone. So understand, he fully understands that when he is giving these, these various commands we'll look at. Uh, we, we see that he understands the gospel in the way that he says things like, like we must control our tongues in, in chapter 1, verse 26. And, and yet by 3.8, he's saying, no one can, claim the, can tame the tongue. Right? The, that paradox. 
So we see he understands the gospel when he says in 2.13 that mercy triumphs over judgment. Or when he says in 5.11, right, that, that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And when he says in, in chapter 1, verse 21, that these Christians should receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Right? He's encouraged them to other scripture. He's encouraged them to, to the word of God because that's where we find the message of, of grace. And, and finally, I just want to tell you, I, I am personally very excited to study James. Um, I mean, I'm always excited to study anything, but this one, like, historically for me is really exciting uh, to study. I, I've spent, I don't know, 20-something years making sense out of that famous statement of James in, in chapter 2, verse 26, right? Faith apart from works is dead. Right? It's a big part of just really starting to understand God in the Christian life. It, it has challenged and changed the way I just think about the Christian life in a good way. Now, uh, I, I can't remember where I heard it, but someone once said that the distance uh, between heaven and hell is 18 inches. That that's the distance between your head and your heart. Is it here? Somewhere around there? Um, right? You, you know the difference, what they're getting at. So some, things that, some things you know intellectually, right? You could pass a test on it. And other things you know so deeply that they just seep into your heart and they change you in a way that you couldn't not be changed. I mean, that's, that's what we want. That's the way we want to understand the gospel. That's the way we want to understand what Christ has done for us and our love for him. Now, admittedly, at times in my life, I am a, a hearer of the word only and not a doer. If that doesn't make sense to you, it will in a few weeks. Uh, we, we, we all want to be hearers and doers of the word. can't be a doer unless you're a hearer. Uh, we, we want to practice what we know to be true. But why, right? Because this reveals who or, or what is, is the king of our hearts, our body, our souls. The David Gibson in his book, Radically Whole, says this. He says, the fundamental problem of the human condition is not primarily what we say or do. Rather, it is who and what we love instead of God. Right? He says that the whole book that I just mentioned is about the book of James. His whole thing here is that the heart issues that we want to get to are often seen through the way we actually live our life. Okay? But that's not what it's about. It's not about just doing right things. It's about learning to love the Lord and seeing how that overflows in the way we actually live our life. And, and so we are going to wrestle with this letter um, as it in the words of Hebrew 4.12, or Hebrews 4.12, uh, discerns the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And it's going to do this on subjects like uh, money and materialism, on, on suffering and trials, on uh, oppression and prayer, and, and, and how, how often we use our, our mouths, our tongues, in destructive manners. And, and I think you're going to enjoy the way that James writes, right? I kind of just want to let you know what we're getting into here, right? It's, it, the way he writes it, it's just overflowing with illustrations and word pictures. We're, we're going to learn about demons that believe in God and yet shudder. We're, we're going to learn about riches that rot and about uh, how desire becomes pregnant and, and gives birth to sin, like these beautiful word pictures and, and so many more. It, it, it's also incredibly applicable. can't say that word right now. Applicable? Applicable? Anyway. Uh, there are 54 commands in 108 verses here. I need to check my math. That's one every other verse, right? 108, 54, someone check it later, right? That's a, that's a command of the Lord for us every other verse on average. It won't actually work out that way. Now listen, James was a solid doubter and he was transformed by the gospel. 
And, and he longs for his readers. He longs, right, for the original readers. He longs for anyone who reads, and that includes you and I, to be transformed by the gospel as well. One of my seminary professors, uh, Sinclair Ferguson, who's alive, by the way, he's got one of those names. I went to a bookstore one time, a Christian bookstore, and they had this list of, of uh, dead theologians, and I found his books on there, so I'll let him know about that later. Uh, anyway, here's what he says. He says, he wants to see Christian friends growing into well-rounded and mature Christians. Believers whose faith is in good working order and who have learned to be patient and steadfast in the face of suffering and persecution and who function well in the fellowship of the church. I want this for you. I want this for us as a church. I, I want this for me. Do you, do you want this, right? You want this too. So let's marinate in this letter of James. We're going to do that. I believe it's going to be 17 weeks, but we're going to take as long as we need and we won't rush if we need to. Um, and let me just leave you with this. The main takeaway today, it should be, I hope it's obvious, right? Uh, but to meditate on the way that James identifies himself as a doulos, a servant, a bondservant, a slave, right? Um, of both God and Jesus. And I want you to meditate on that and really ponder this, right? How, do, how does that compare to the way that, that you typically identify yourself? Not identify yourself, but what, what identities you take on, right? Uh, are, are you willing to identify with, with Jesus, to, to live according to, to Jesus' ways, to, to loyally submit your life to your gracious Heavenly Father in the power of the Holy Spirit? Right? Are, are you? That's the question. How do you, right? Uh, so think about that in the days ahead. And I just want to close then with the words of, of our Lord in, in, in Luke 9, 23, where here Jesus says this. He says, to those who wish to be disciples, he's speaking to me. He says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Let's pray. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we have so much to learn in the weeks ahead from these inspired words. Yes, a letter from James. Yes, your holy words to your church, your people. Um. Yeah, we thank you for these words from our, our long dead but forever living brother in Christ, uh, James. And even today, we, we ask that you would help us to willingly identify in the same manner as James does here at the beginning as a, a doulos, as, as joyful servants of yours. Uh, give us joy, even as we head, our, head to the table now. Lord, it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.